1: All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit CambriaInvestments.com.
0: Welcome podcast listeners and happy new year. Today we have a fantastic show featuring a true market vet who's been in the business for decades. And over this time, he's launched numerous investment companies, one of which became one of the world's premier market making firms, eventually accounting for 7% of the index options trade in the US and about 1% of all NYC daily traded volume. He eventually sold that company to Goldman Sachs and has been one of the old school market wizards. We're honored to have him on the show today. Welcome Blair Hall. Thank you, man. Good to be here. So Blair, I went back and was actually reading a, a lot of material and research and came across a great nugget that before we get into kind of the modern day investment stuff, thought we'd hear a little bit about your background and eventually how you worked your way to investments. But you had a grandfather that used to actually trade chart stocks by hand. Was he, was, was he a Dow theorist guy? Was he a, a point and figure? What was the, do you remember that far back looking at, at uh, how, how grandpa used to approach the markets?
1: Well, I was fascinated with the fact that he did chart these every day. And I thought he puts a high, low, and close down. And I thought, my gosh, that's, that's sort of, that may, uh there might be something there. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 12 or 13 years old at this time. I have no idea what he's doing other than, well, that's sort of fascinating. So then uh, as an undergraduate, University of California, Santa Barbara, and then, in, in, and then I, I later went to graduate school, graduate school of business, probably trying to figure out what he was doing during those times. And I, I sort of concluded that for the most part, charting uh, wasn't of any value, but uh, that's what uh, sort of piqued my interest in, in, in the investment process.
0: So you, you had a little bit of a windy road before you started trading on your own. Can you go back in time and, and give us a little bit of a timeline on, on how you went from learning a little bit from grandpa to school and grad school and saw a couple different stops along the way uh, and eventually starting your own firm? What, what were kind of the stops and starts that got you, got you to eventually the investment world?
1: Blackjack was really what got me into the investment world. It was a book by Ed Thorpe, and he said that if you had lots of little cards out of the deck, then you had more big cards, and that would be tens and aces, and if you got a blackjack, you got paid one and a half to one, so you had an advantage. So I played blackjack for five years. I played 50 days a year for five years, and it was that capital, not only that capital that I was able to gain during that time of playing, but also the experience of dealing with risk and reward that got me into the investment business. I then went and leased a seat on the Pacific Stock Exchange and uh, started trading options using the same kind of theory of getting an advantage and staying in the game, but in this case, coming up with a value of each option. And then, uh, so it was very similar. I consider the blackjack an investment. In fact, uh, William Sharpe, Nobel Prize winner in economics defined an investment as a sacrifice of current consumption for expected future gain. Well, gambling is just a sacrifice of current consumption for expected future loss. So if you can actually turn the odds in your favor, you're an investor. So I was really an investor when I went and played blackjack.
0: You know, it's funny, we've had Ed on the podcast and I actually did a stint when I was a glorified ski bum living in in Lake Tahoe learning to count and of course this is decades later but there's so many parallels and wonderful takeaways like you mentioned there's risk management there's bet sizing there's learning you know systematic approaches where emotions play a role i mean one of the classic ones you know playing blackjack is i remember i sat down with my wife a, a year or two ago we were at a CPA conference and i was trying to teach her how to play blackjack at the table and basic strategy And we lost, I think, like the first 10 hands in a row. (laughs) And her her reaction was, I don't get the point of this. If you're just going to lose, why would you play? But there's there's so many takeaways. And it was interesting because you guys actually applied a bit of a, you joined a team and then kind of started your own teams for a while. Maybe talk a little bit about that before we get into the investment world. About kind of the differences of being a, a lone shark versus teams, and kind of how that worked out.
1: The difficulty in in blackjack and in investing is that you need to get into the long run. You need to have enough individual investments that can prove out in the long run. It's 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 very uncertain game investing or blackjack, and so. And your chances, if you're one of the, if you're the world's best blackjack player in the world, to go up, if you go up for a weekend and you play for eight hour, for 16 hours, say eight hours, two days in a row, you get 800 hands. It's it's 100 hands an hour times eight hours, be 1600 hands in a day. Your chances of being a winner at the end of those 1600 hands is only two out of three. So if you were to join with another person, and then you both go up and play, your chances of being a winner at the end of a weekend would not be two out of three, they'd be three out of four. So if you're able to get in more hands, it is helpful in terms of reducing your fluctuations of capital, which is a key. You need to not only get an advantage in the game you play, but you must stay in the game.
0: My, My one foray into trying a team was I had a buddy who... Also learned to count cards. And we I remember being in Lake Tahoe at, I don't know, Neva, Biltmore, one of these one of these terrible casinos. And we decided to split up and had our bankroll and set of rules and he's a really good card counter. And after about an hour, I checked in with one of my friends and I said, how's, how's our buddy Chris doing? He says, oh man, he's down $1,000 already. I'm like, already? How is that even possible? And he says, I don't know, but he sure is having a good time. He's had about five Bloody Marys. So you, you, learn, you learn that it's not necessarily even the system problems, but implementation of the systems that can cause challenges too. All right. So you kind of evolved. You said, you know, look, you know, Blackjack's great, but what, what was the transition to option trading and the Pacific Stock Exchange? Was it just looking for different challenges and bigger markets? What, what was the kind of ideas that prompted you to, to move on?
1: I went into, uh, I became a market maker in the Pacific Stock Exchange with my winnings from Blackjack. And I was intrigued by market timing. And in fact, I presented a paper in, I believe it was 81, at a conference. It was actually a gambling conference in Lake Tahoe. The conclusion of that paper is that it is possible to time the market. I was a big fan of Norm Flossback.
0: Stock market logic?
1: Yes, and I I still uh, maintain a friendship with Norm. And he believed, and, and I'm convinced that he's right, that and it's been sort of proven in the academic literature now that market timing is possible. What my paper did show is that even if it, even if you were able to time the market, the returns on from options trading and blackjack at that time, though there were opportunities in both of those areas, the risk-reward uh, characteristics vastly exceeded market timing. And so I actually, one of the greatest decisions I made was to not deal with market timing in 1980 or 82, but to concentrate on buying inexpensive options and selling expensive options. And that's what led to the sale to of the firm to Goldman Sachs. So that was one of my best decisions. But back in, get it move, fast forward into 2008, I was convinced that there was some way to have a bigger exposure to the market at certain times and a smaller exposure in others that would enhance your overall return. By that time I had a family office, you know it was uh, uh, managing the, really the proceeds of the sale and tried it in tried an intelligent way. And so coming out of two thousand and eight, I said, my God, there's there's got to be a way. Well, it it ends up that there was a turn in the academic literature about that time where most of the articles said, no, you can't really time the market. to saying that there are a number of indicators that actually are predictive, and if you could put those into a strategy, that um, you actually could get enhanced returns, and that's what led to the formation of the ETF HTUS and the uh, strategy that we have in place.
0: So let's 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 start to transition into some of these ideas now, because we'll, we can probably talk about this for a while. So you sold your firm, you started thinking about again these some of these some of these market timing ideas. The market commentary, like you mentioned, is littered with people talking about timing the market is impossible. And one of my favorite quotes, and I think it's Jim Rogers, who I, I love Jim Rogers, but he's he's always I think he's attributed the quote of I've never met a rich technician, and which is really funny because I I googled that phrase to try to remember who it was, and actually it goes back to our blog where we had posted when Marty Zweig passed away that his condominium in New York City was up was for sale for like 150 million dollars or something. And so I smiled because Marty was one of the most famous market technicians in history. Anyway, so there, there's a lot of debate and obviously it gets very emotional when people start to talk about market timing. You've got a laundry list of famous people like Malkiel, et cetera, that say, you just can't do it. So talk to us a little bit about the genesis of some of these ideas. We, How you think about market timing in general? What's the approach We'll certainly link to all these white papers that, that y'all have written on the, on the show notes. But give us your overall framework for how you think about an approach to, to, to market timing.
1: Well, I look at it a little bit like blackjack. If you have 10 different cards out there, every time you see a card, it gives you a different kind of, of idea about the future. And so the question is, what are the cards and what are the weights on the cards? That's all. What are the indicators and then what weights do you put on them? And certainly, they're not going to come into play. They don't come into play all the time. And if you can get them so that you know when they come into play and then count the pertinent variables at that time, you've got a system that can be a winner. And we're very transparent about what we do. In fact, we have a, um, a new report on our website called the Signal Decomposition where we models that come up with, uh, use something like 45 different indicators, but it, it only... We have variable selection in each of these models, so it selects only certain variables. It comes down to about 14 variables that actually are in our models today, and that changes every day, and that's on on the website Hull Tactical. Yeah, so why don't
0: you give us just a broad overview of that theory? So... For example, you know you're, you're targeting U.S. stocks, S and P 500, and you got a laundry list of indicators that people would be familiar with. Everything from Baltic Dry Index to unemployment to trend and housing. Maybe walk us through just kind of a basic overview of these two papers or three, I think even that, that you all have written, and how you kind of approach it, and and how a quant like yourself who used to be you know super involved in much more market making, higher frequency, approaches a longer term sort of tactical system. You know, what, what's the what's the framework for how, you know, you guys went and, and kind of constructed this?
1: There, well, there was one indicator that, that actually piqued our interest, and that's the uh, Federal Reserve Bank Loan Officer Survey. And that's a variable that does not appear in the academic literature. Well, it actually does, there is an article that says it predicts returns, and it really says that if you're tightening credit, that's a bad sign. If you're loosening credit, it's a good sign. And so, that was the, the, a unique variable that we thought was significant. We found out that the correlations with six months returns was about 30%, which is a fairly high correlation for an indicator in the market. And so, we combined that. Then I went back and studied the academic literature to find out, find articles such as uh, the price – whether the price-to-earnings ratio was, was important, whether, whether uh, variance risk premium or, or, or things like uh, the Baltic Dry Index, whether those actually did. And, and, and I really leaned on the academic literature. So we, what we did is we combined these, all these variables, and we ran a, we ran a regression of those in, in a walk-forward way with no um, forward-looking bias to see if we could actually exceed the returns of the S&P 500. And amazingly, by taking a position that was proportional to our forecast, we were able to uh, double the Sharpe ratio of the S&P 500 and enhance the return. So that's the basis of this, and, and that started with a six-month model, and then we moved into, we, we found some indicators that were more indicative of shorter term, such as the one month, and we just we published that. Uh, that's actually out on SSRN that day. The first paper is published in the Journal of Portfolio Management. The second one we have not submitted yet for publication. But those two models are, I'd say, 75% 75% of, of the power in our indicators.
0: Well, and the cool part too is that Blair publishes pretty transparently. He's like, hey, if you want to go replicate this, here's how you do it. Here's all the series online, go for it. Um, and so we'll certainly link to you know the data series that people can take a look at. And so well, let's talk about the actual kind of you know real world implementation is that, so you take a look at all these indicators and it gives you an recommended allocation. And I think the range, if I recall, was... A 200% long down to 100% short. Is that right? And that's updated on a daily basis? That's correct. Yes. Okay. And so talk to me a little bit about that, that traditional positioning. Is it something that most of the time it's, you know, 60% long or it varies highly day to day? What's the kind of actual real world or people, if someone was following you, would they may be making trades every day or is it like every few months? How's it, how's it actually kind of play out in, in sort of real world implementation?
1: We actually do change the position every day, but it, it changes a very small amount. Well, today we're 56% long, and uh, that is made up of uh, – we, we target 80% of the volatility of the S&P 500. That's our target. We try to, try to make sure we have less volatility in the S&P 500. I'll tell you one of the variables that is I think is, is, is one of our key variables, uh, that is, and it's called valuation. I mean, you've uh, you've certainly used valuation and momentum in your strategies. Our valuation is combines three different aspects. It's cyclically adjusted, it, well, first it's cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio as designed by Robert Schiller. And then we also have the cyclically adjusted dividend yield, but we also include buybacks in our dividend yield. And then we also have book to price. We combine those three variables to get an overall valuation using a technique called principal components analysis. That's one of the key variables that is in both the short-term model and the and long-term model.
0: And I think one of the things that people may or may not be familiar with or understand is talk a little bit about is, so you have X number of indicators, and I can't remember if it's 15, 25, but, but there's a handful of indicators in this model but you're not always using all of them all the time. Can you explain kind of briefly how you go about putting together a model that may have shifting inputs in, into the actual model? Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, we have a certain look back period, and this is all published information. So, and it's is the six month model, actually looks back, it actually looks back 12 years. We found that by looking back 12 years, at the last 12 years of history, we get the best results going forward. So it's re-run, I think it's re-run every month. Every month we do another, we look back 12 years, and we run a regression and it selects a certain number of variables. Now if we look at the daily report that is on the whole tactical, we see that I think there are five variables in that model, the Baltic Dry Index, the Loan Survey, New Orders New Adjustments, the Price Variable, and the Variance Risk Premium, those are the five variables that go into that model. And then in the, uh, the same thing will occur with the uh, one month model. Variance risk premium is there, also the loan survey, but there's also, we have the National Association of Purchase Managers Index. We've also got the change in unemployment rate and the change in inflation. So each, each there's a selection criteria, which in the first model is a correlation screening. You have to have a correlation of at least 10% in the past period. And the other was it's a stepwise criteria with the AIC criteria being the being the choice. So the model itself selects the variables.
0: And so the interesting thing about this is it's dynamic, you know. And on top of that, you know, you guys have continued to refine the model. You know, like you mentioned, you published the six month and then the one month, and and it's con- kind of continually updating. And it probably makes sense, the exposure right now. That's probably signaling mid-bullishness where the trend and a lot of the indicators are probably positive, but you're starting to see like on the valuation side and some of the late inning bull market kind of indicators flashing. We actually just tweeted yesterday that the old AAII study, a sentiment survey was showing that people's equity allocations were creeping up to the, the highest level they've been since I think 2000. But it probably makes sense. It Has it... When was the last time that it's actually flashed, and you may not know this, but flashed negative positioning where it would actually be short? Would that be all the way back to the crisis, or is it kind of dipped in any time in the past few years?
1: We've been operating this since 2012 with real money. So it's been quite some time before we have had since we've had a negative sig- signal.
0: Yeah, well, that's a, a long a long bull market will do that.
1: But it's interesting. we're trying to look at things in a little in more of a nonlinear fashion than we did before. What it's the American Association of Independent Investors, is that what it is?
0: Individual investors and you know, the sentiment has always been a tough category of indicators for me because it's it's often, you know, coincident, but it's sentiment can always get more and more extreme. So it's kind of like a magazine cover indicator that we use for storytelling. It doesn't necessarily play into a lot of the actual models we run, but it's interesting. So for example, so that's the AI, that goes back to the 1980s. There's another one called Investor's Intelligence that goes all the way back to the 60s. And the Luthold Group, which is based out of the Midwest, does a study that they just published again, where they look at, the average on the investor's intelligence back to the 60s and the 10 highest years, the average across the entire year, in 2017 would have been the second highest average bullishness. And usually, as you would expect, the next year returns are pretty subpar. But you know, we, 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 we often struggle with actually using sentiment as a factor, but I think they're interesting to give you kind of a little color. But yeah, the AI one part of the allocation is simply that investors allow their portfolios to drift with what the market's doing. So it makes sense they have a high equity allocation because they just sit there and it goes up over time. But maybe something for you to look into, <laughs> maybe, maybe some, uh, some interesting series there.
1: Aii, hey, I, we have looked at that uh, extensively, but it doesn't mean that we don't, we're not gonna go back and look at it again. I'm, I've been uh, intrigued by sentiment, and there's, there are a series of papers by uh, Baker and Wugler are the most quoted and they've got things like the closed fund index. They've got a variety of indicators that are available. And, and it's the stand, there's a standard academic set that people use. And we've looked at this. We've looked at the put-call ratio from the CDOE. We haven't found anything in those sentiment indicators. And I wish I could. I, here's how excited I am about I made investments in two different firms that are using the Twitter feed. One of them was iSentium that is around and then the other one is market psych. I made private equity investments of these to be closer to the firms so I could get a handle and we actually had iSentium in the Twitter feed. We did have an indicator we were using for some time but for some reason the sentiment just changed when we had a Trump presidency suddenly things sort of reversed on us and um, there's something happened with the political sentiment and, and we haven't been able to sort that out yet. So I'm, uh, if, if you could enlighten me at all with, the use of sentiment in these indicators,
0: I would love it. Well, the the main sentiment indicator I use is is my mom, and anytime she asks, uh, starts to talk about an investment, it's the perfect counter trade. And she's also the the podcast number one listener. So hi, mom. But she's she's not talking about cryptocurrencies yet. So that that's going to be my final tell. Is the the death of Bitcoin will be when when mom starts to talk about it. But that, I struggle with sentiment. It's it's a squishy sort of area to me. Is that it can always get to more extreme reading so we we don't particularly use it but it's but it's kind of nice for storytelling so if you find anything let me know um, but i'll send you the luth the luth old article it's pretty pretty good study
1: we've actually used some pretty sophisticated machine learning techniques too and we have not been able to get a cross-validated uh, signal that is uh, meaningful yet so that I'm, unfortunately i don't have it but i love your i love the uh the mom indicator that's that is uh, one of my famous uh, favorite ones too
0: yeah. By the way, so i speaking of Twitter is I had tweeted right before this chat. I said, "Hey, if you got any questions for Blair, fire him over." And one of them was actually on the topic you just mentioned. He says, "You know, do you mention that AI or machine learning either will, will lead to an advantage?" you know, to some market players akin to to high frequency in the mid late 2000s. So while we're on the topic of Twitter, I figured I'd kick that one over to you. And and ironically, the next question was also how useful do you think extreme sentiment readings are? So we already answered that one. But, but what's the kind of role that, you know, AI, I mean, for someone who used to have what you guys used to have 100, 200 employees, physicists, scientists, all that good stuff. what, what do you kind of think about do you, do you think about that area at all? Or are you guys doing uh, any research?
1: I still have a proprietary trading firm that is uh, operating on a very high frequency basis. And so with the amount of data that you have, we can use some statistic. we can use some techniques in there such as nearest neighbors or regression trees, random forest, some of these techniques. And I actually went back, got a certificate in statistical learning from Stanford to try to learn these techniques. But the problem with market timing is our data sets are so small. You know, we talk about 252 days a year, that's 2,500 days a decade. Uh, we can have maybe 10,000 observations. And a lot of these techniques do require 100,000 plus observations to be meaningful. And so, and do cross validation in, in a, a way. So, unfortunately, the sophisticated techniques do not apply as well to the market timing problem as they might to a higher frequency trading situation.
0: And there's actually another follow-on question. I mean, it's funny. These are these are all right coming in line. It says, how does one bet size when using machine learning and or rolling regressions where you don't have enough historical data to understand past odds? Do you just ignore it? Or what is the process there?
1: We have looked at this in a, in a variety of ways, trying to use the Kelly criteria to say what's what edge do we really have and how can we maximize our wealth doing this? And it really comes down to, you've got to also pick a criteria that you're willing to accept, what kind of drawdown you're willing to accept, which constrains you uh, quite a bit. Um, We have actually chosen to go that we want 80% of the volatility of the S&P. So that's sort of the way in which we have designed our bets uh, at this point. But it is a key. It is really a key to maximizing wealth is Is the optimal size of your bet?
0: All right. So two follow-up questions what we just talked about. So one is, does the average retail investor stand a chance? So did you think, okay, well, if you're going to do market timing or you're going to start to replicate some of these ideas, you know, should you just allocate to funds like, you know, HTUS or should you try to implement on your own? Does the individual retail investor stand a, stand a chance against kind of the, the machines going forward? What's your general kind of takeaway, thoughts and advice there?
1: Well, to do a good job at market timing, and I think we're doing a, a relatively good job, uh, we have really the equivalent of three, three full-time people, not counting me. So that's what it's gonna take you. And then you have to have the infrastructure, which is the computing power and the data sources. So you have to be able to lean on other parts of, we lean on certain parts of our operation that uh, give us some uh, some of the expertise and some of the access to data. One of the sources just recently that we're looking into that there's been a new paper that said that option open interest uh, seems to be indicated, indicative of aggregate returns and so we're, in order to get the option open, interest every day at a certain time, and you have to, you have to say it. In this case, we're using Chicago time, but at 2:45, our machines start to run and they pick up all the data from all these sources. And at 2:50, we've got a, a signal, and then, and then we between 2:55 and 2:50 250 and 2:55, we make sure we check to make sure that the data doesn't make sense. And then that, that order is submitted for the close. So we, get, we actually do get the S&P 500 close. We have a, uh, the exact close on, on that. The beauty of, although I was in higher frequency strategies before, the idea of the of market timing is that the market is so massive that you have a tremendous amount of capacity in any kind of a strategy that you use if you can come up with a
0: technique. And-, and, and a natural, you know, being a quant like you are and like I am, you know, it's actually funny is that if you go back to the Cambria's founding, a lot of the original research we were doing was kind of this conometric. And it's it's funny you mentioned Fosback because I remember sitting down with a lot of the guys at Ned Davis back in the day in the early 2000s and they mentioned the same thing. They took out that big red book, put it on their desk and said, this is, this is one of the actual, I mean, you can tell Norm this, this is one of the big inspirations for Ned Davis, too, uh, and a lot of the models they built. And then the, the late Nelson Freeberg used to do a lot there. And so we were, we've were we always been very interested, and in, I need to go update some of those models. And the cool part, there's actually a couple of websites that have sprung up that start to track a lot of these these sort of quant models. One's called Allocate Smartly. What's the other one? Extragenic. We have, we'll, we'll post a link. There's about eight of them, Quantopian. But a natural extension, Blair, would be, all right, so you've done this in the U.S., you know, why not apply this lens to more breadth? Just like Blackjack and having a team, you know, could you apply this to foreign markets, uh, developed, emerging, individual countries, other asset classes? You guys thought about that at all?
1: Oh, there's no question. that We're dealing with a two-asset problem. Uh, you're dealing with the say 10 asset problem, which is looking at not only at uh, foreign securities but also uh, commodities, real estate, private equity, to and and so the ultimate strategy is one that includes expected returns in in all of these asset classes and in locations. There's no question about it, and uh, it's it's a logical extension for us to. Uh,
0: Good. I'm I'm waiting on. I'm waiting on the white paper. We've digested all the other ones, so we're look forward to a foreign developed. So you mentioned a little bit about private investing. So your career's kind of spanned a lot of different things. There's been high frequency, this kind of econometric stuff. Now a little bit of private. What what else has got you guys excited today? Are you and, and when you think about doing research, because you're clearly still very involved in in a lot of these aspects. Is there anything else that is is on your brain? You're thinking about. You guys launched a cryptocurrency cur- trading firm yet. What, what what else are you thinking about these days?
1: Well, I think the key to our success is going to be focused, and and this is I am really focused on this problem. This this market stigma that has existed uh, market timing, I believe is. Uh, just as it has existed, that it was irresponsibly involved in market timing in the last 30 years, I believe it will be irresponsible not to be involved in market timing in the next 30 years. And when we have correlations that go to one, when we really have a disaster, that the idea of getting an edge in the market is is so critical. And there's so many uh, there's so many things that actually indicators that are meaningful. Uh, that have been proven, such as uh, the turn of the month effect uh, that comes in, uh, the fact that stocks do go, tend to go up in the last couple days of the month and and in the first few days of the next month. And why aren't people a little more exposed to equities at that time? Well, what we do in this is that we see we try to get the optimal weights of how much you should bet on that turn of the month effect. And then there's there's so many of these that come in that that are significant, that if you could just get those right, uh, you'd have a big edge.
0: Do you have a pet favorite? I, I did a podcast with Patrick O'Shaughnessy. We did a, a factor draft for stocks. If you had to pick stocks based on traditional factors, it was a lot of fun. Do you, do you have a, a pet favorite indicator? I'm not holding you to it, but, but is there one that kind of you had to say, I'm going to pick one, this is my favorite?
1: I did talk about valuation and how we look at valuation as price earnings, I would say along with that, uh, you know, it, it's, it's sort of a this is a funny one. The Baltic Dry Index has been around a long time, but that still that still cuts meets our correlation screening that one. And then the other one, I would say, it, 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 only in in really in really extreme times is the variance risk premium. That's certainly one of my favorites too.
0: Yeah, valuation is an interesting one because I feel like so many people misunderstand it and misapply it. And I've I've kind of grown weary and frustrated with the media at this point to where I, 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 I tell myself I'm not going to engage any more conversations about valuation, but I, I keep seeing articles about it and it, it it drives me a little nuts. But yeah, I mean, even we're reading John Bogle's, Jack Bogle's updated new book recently and where he came out and this I think was in the fall. And he said, you know, look, US stocks use simple valuation techniques that have been around for decades Four percent, you know, and and he's he tends to be an optimist in that area. So, you know, and that was that was a few months ago. So who knows? A couple more questions and we gotta start winding down. We've had you man, this has flown by. We got a lot of questions from people that, you know, said, Hey, let, let ask Blair a little bit about kind of being a young quant today. So if someone's coming out of school, you mentioned that You know even you were going back to to get updated on new techniques and ideas to understand the fields what kind of advice would you give a a young grad getting into to quant finance i mean there's some people that that said you know as some techniques uh you know as the world evolves and some techniques fade away and the competition comes too high with high frequency what advice would you give you know a new ucsb grad that's coming out of of school any general thoughts
1: well i'd I'd say one thing uh there's so many opportunities now with Coursera or uh, there, there's so many different courses out there, it behooves you to be in one of those courses all the time almost. Techniques are coming up so fast that uh, there's no question about that. So, and, and I do tend to be a little bit of a, uh, we sort of favor the R language. Uh, it's either R or if you're in very high-frequency suck, it's going to be more in Python. But you've got to be proficient in one of those languages. If you can't be proficient in, in some coding language, uh, you're, you're pretty much cooked these days.
0: It's interesting because... We like to call ourselves quant lights over here. So anytime I hit my head on the ceiling on coding and projects, we, we ring up our buddies at, <laughs> in academia, like Wes Gray, and say, Wes, you got to do this for us. But, but there's so many ideas and extensions that I think are, are still useful that uh, would be a lot of fun. And, and I heard, I think it was, I want to say it was Josh Brown that said, you know, as the world gets so sophisticated and there's so many PhDs attacking problems and the markets get more efficient, he said one of the you know benefits is, is being longer term focused, you know, where people can still, you're not necessarily competing on the second or, or day interval, but, but f- focused on, on kind of the longer term. And by the way, Coursera listeners is an online education module. So Blair, maybe, maybe we'll convince you to do a course. What, 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 what's the topic going to be on uh, uh, building the building a world's uh, market timing system?
1: It could be the equity risk premium.
0: I think you should do it. I think that'd be a lot of fun. You'd get a lot of subscribers and and probably some new investors. We, you know, we'd actually polled the listeners of our, so the readers of the blog before we started a podcast for many years. We didn't do a podcast because we thought it'd be more useful to do a high production video series. But everyone voted for the podcast. But but a lot of the learning for myself and I know a lot of people are like this is very visual. So having something like that, I, you know, put it in your brain, maybe, maybe a to do for 2018. All right. A couple more quick hits and we're going to have to let you go. You know, as you reflect back, one of the main questions we asked our 2017 theme, which we need a new one now, Jeff, by the way, it's 2018 was what's been the most memorable investment in your career. It could be trade. It could be good. It could be bad. What's the first thing that kind of pops in your head as you think about looking back on your investment career?
1: Now, I was involved in a trade in the uh, in October of '87. Uh, that certainly was a memorable trade. You know, we had a, uh, a major market downturn in the crash of '87. I was in the right place at the right time with a fairly large trade. That uh, I was actually on the floor of the exchange at that time. I would say that's. Uh, I only I have that trade. That uh, nothing sort of overshadows that one.
0: So, 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 so walk us through that, though. You know, so obviously, Black Monday, the crash 1987, U.S. stock market got pummeled. Was, was the trade, you were short going in, you were buying at the bottom? What was the methodology? Was it a gut reaction? Was it your models?
1: We were a market maker on the Chicago Board of Options Exchange, and we were one of the first firms to have a machine that would show our prices. On for, for the crowd to see, just as we were being so transparent in this ETF, this exchange-traded fund, HTUS, we, are, we were very transparent at that time, trying to show everybody what our prices for our options were, so that they'd come and buy or sell from us. And the, that morning, volatility had gone to, to, historically, it was about 16, went all the way, it was in the 80s it actually peaked at somewhere in the hundreds. And so we were, I was in that pit trying to keep order in the pit and keep our prices in line. But the the Fed had actually tightened margins on, uh, and the banks and the clearing firms had actually restricted every, every the market makers were cap- capital. And so, and we had positions in New York and all over the place and so we were trying to actually reduce our position. So we were actually short the major market index at the Board of Trade. I had to go over there that morning. And so I was the only firm member of the firm that had the full seat on the Board of Trade. So I went over and traded that. And I was, I was trying to buy in small units, small lots, to just try to reduce our position. And the market continued to crash uh, during that time. But there was a rumor that came up that the Chicago Mercantile was going to close the S&P 500 futures. The New York Stock Exchange to all practical purposes was closed. They didn't answer their phones, so you could not buy or sell stock really. So the only market there was only the, the only other market open was the Chicago border Trade which had a yall look alike. And so I I was in that pit and the, the broker came knowing that I was the only I was the small. I was a buyer, but buying small. Said, where will you buy hundred contracts? And I was buying five lots most of the time. And and I gave him a. Uh, at that time, it used to trade in nickels, like it would be two hundred eighty dollars and five cents at ten cents. In this case, it was. In this case, it was. It was trading two ninety, but it was like two ninety bid at two ninety five. So it's bid at 290, but I see since we're all about 100, I said 285—a ridiculously low price—and he said, "You own them." I had a big swallow. I, I almost, I almost choked, saying, "Oh my God!" He later sold me another 50, and that ended up to be the absolute low of the 87 crash. It later closed at something like 385. It went from 285 to 385. There was such a rally. It was at such a discount, so that that has to, uh, that has to mark the uh, my, my career as, as D trade uh,
0: for me. That's such a great one. and it, it, it brings back so many like memories, but also just thoughts on, you know, thinking about markets where there's a great phrase where talking about normal market returns are extreme, and thinking about these outliers and crazy events, I mean, looking back of the past year. I don't know anyone that would predict that for the first time in history, particularly particularly after the election, that the stock market would be up every single month in, in 2017. And so markets are always confounding people. You know, how, how do you like how does that play into your thinking about, you know, thinking about markets in general, where you have these huge outlier events, both positive and negative? So 2017 being kind of an outlier on some of the lowest volatility on record, Is that something you think there's anything has really changed or this time is different where something is maybe suppressing volatility or you think it's just a normal, you know, the, just a normal way markets are behaving?
1: Well, let me, let me tell you my only, I am completely data driven. If I don't have the data, I can't put it in my model and we go completely objectively by the model. So I have found that it is emotions will kill you in this game. You can't, you just have to go with some kind of a systematic approach. At least for me, that has been su- successful over the years, and I'm not deviating from that. Unfortunately, we didn't have any data on who the president was going to be or what was going to happen. I wish I would had, <laughs> had some data on that, and I, I actually hope I don't have that data in the future. So all we can do is look at what we have, the data we have available, and I think the key is going to be tightening the credit here, and when that occurs, that's, uh, that will signal the uh, downturn.
0: Interesting and podcast listeners, by the way, Blair has the interesting life statistic of at least once leading Barack Obama in a Senate race. So we we have uh, we have all sorts of interesting ideas. But but as far as the volatility speaking, is this environment something that you know you kind of scratch your head? The biggest surprise to me of the last ten years is certainly I think negative yielding sovereign bonds. Like I I think if you went back ten years ago and said we're going to have a bunch of sovereigns that are negative yielding, that's to me, I would think most people would be like, that's crazy. What's Is there something in this environment that surprises you at all? Or do you just kind of think this is markets as usual? This volatility is kind of just normal, normal sort of? Is, is there anything at all where it makes you kind of scratch your head a little bit?
1: Well, we certainly had an extended period of, of low volatility. I don't know how you measure that necessarily, but the average volatility over the last year, I guess you, you, you could measure it in that way. Uh, I do know that we're complete. I'm completely certain that volatility will change, that it will vary, and that volatility will only, we're at, at the, at the lowest point of, possible volatility. I can't, I can't tell you that. We just don't know when it's going to occur.
0: Well, that's that's what that's what makes this game fun, right? Is is it's never never a dull day. You're a former Chicago guy, so we used to call this the, the Jay Cutler bull market, the sh- former Chicago Bears QB, where it's just kind of a no one, no one seems to have that euphoria yet. Although that seems to be changing in the past few months, you're starting to see a little bit of the excitement, but, but most of it happening, not necessarily in equities, but in, but in the crypto world, which I, there's a lot of banana stuff going on Claire, It's been a blast. Where can people, we'll, we'll post links in the show notes, but, but where can people find more information on you, your fun, what's going on, your updates, your white papers, all that good stuff.
1: I think you should go to dot com And, um, uh look at the daily report and then try to go down to the decomposition of the signal, which will give things like sell in May. We haven't talked about that. Are there any, uh, what are your feelings about selling May?
0: That's, that's an interesting, there's, there's so many sort of indicators and ideas and the challenge for me is always to take a step back like 10,000 feet. So for example, you know, I understand why I can kind of make an argument for valuation or for momentum and selling way. Like I can make a story around it and it, and it historically has had great returns and listeners, by the way, that's most of the market returns tend to occur in that, what is it? October through end of April period. And even more outsized in some areas like biotech or tech, and you can make arguments about why that's the case. I don't know that, you know, I would ever put I, it would be an indicator I would use as a potential in an ensemble. I don't know that I would ever put a, a big wager on it, but it, it seemingly makes sense to me.
1: Yeah, there's no, you're not going to put any, on any one variable, you're not going to put uh, a majority of your assets. There's no question about that. The only free lunch in financial markets is diversification.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, but that's one you can construct a story around it. And there's others. I mean, I there's a humorous study that I haven't updated in years, but it was—it showed that the vast majority of stock market returns came when Congress was out of session. And there, there actually used to be a, a fund, mutual fund that was based on this, and it—I char- think its downfall was it charged an obscene management fee, but they also used to staff the booths. With a former Miss America pageant winner, <laughs> so I, that that fund, by the way, may still exist. It was called something like the Congressional Fund. We'll have to dig that up and look into it. I don't know. So there's all sorts of ideas that are interesting that may have some inputs that I, you know, you could you could you could definitely construct a good narrative around. But I'm always a trend guy. I think I always default to my favorite indicator, which is just trend. Blair, look, it's been a blast. We could do this for hours. I would love to check in uh, again sometime when you guys start to crank out new papers. Thanks, Thanks for taking the time to uh, sit and chat with us today.
1: Good to talk to you.
0: Listeners, you can always find more information at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. We'll post the show notes, all the links to Blair's material, white papers, websites, ETFs, books, everything else. You can always leave a review on iTunes. Subscribe to us on Castro, Overcast, any of the other good apps. Happy 2018. Good investing.